This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Don't, 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 don't look at what's in front of you. Boot, 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 moving up and down again. Men, 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 men go mad with watching them. There's no discharge in the war. Always wanted to waltz in Berlin. Waltz in Berlin. Waltz in Berlin. The way things look, we'll be waltzing right in. Right into Germany. And Uncle Sam will be leading the band. Eins, zwei, drei, one, two, three. Ach, du lieber victory. Always wanted to waltz in Berlin. Under the linden tree. This is the voice of British resistance. The German conquest of England has brought with it everything which loyal Englishmen despise. We must fight them whenever and wherever we can. What would have happened if the German army had crossed the English Channel? I'm not getting involved with any organization. I'm just going to do district nursing again, the same as I did at home. Do they have districts down here, or is it all controlled from hospital? I don't really know. But this organization sounds the thing. Yes, but it's probably political. And I'm not going to become involved in any political organization. Honor, oh, when Dick was killed, I felt I wanted to slaughter every German I saw in sight. But now I feel all we've got to do is try and get back to normal. The appalling thing about fascism is that you've got to use fascist methods to get rid of it. We've all got a bit of it in us. And it doesn't take much to bring it to the surface. It stays with us. Probably always will. Well, hadn't we better make the most of it now that we're stuck with it? Oh, good God, no. You don't get the point. We're stuck with disease. But we don't sit back and accept it. We fight it. And we've got to fight fascism because it's a disease of the mind. And when you fight a disease, you, you often use its own germ for inoculation. Do you see? to play the music it's time to light the lights it's time to get things started on music for films tonight on resonance fm in london resonancefm.com for replay and the live stream and our old shows are on thebeekeepers.com well there we have it a plethora of versions some of them with added value like music for streets 
and our extended podcast version, More Music for Films. It's a cornucopia, a cornucopia of delights. And speaking of bonus extras, we're joined as a special guest presenter by soon-to-be Dr. Shruti Narayan Swami. Hello. Who listeners may recognise from Chin Chin Chu, our sister programme that we make in India. But we are at Regent's Park and specifically at Chester Terrace. Chester Terrace, which... How can we describe this beautiful Palladian? Yes, Palladian. And Palladianism has a somewhat sinister and mixed reputation in this country because it's seen as the architecture of aristocracy and power. And of course we're here because today's program is about Kevin Brownlow's film It Happened Here which which depicts a fascist invasion of Britain which occurred in World War II and part of the eight year process that it took Kevin Brownlow to make this film, he started when he was 18 an extraordinary feat and we're not talking a crowdsourced movie we're talking a movie made on a wing and a prayer with no mass funding from well-intentioned people. Just bits and bobs when he could get people to do it, when he could do it himself. And anyway, he brought to Chester Terrace an entire marching band. So that's where he got the marching band from. Who knows? He found a bunch of people who could play musical instruments who were prepared to dress up in a version of German uniforms, play German marching songs as they walked down the street. So my colleague Ross Caveney, Shruti Narayan Swami, where we are now standing from, from one of these, these uh, foreboding black doors emerged the butler of the then war minister, John Profumo. John Profumo, later to be disgraced, disgraced former minister, John Profumo. And a, a kind of invisible presence on our Scala map by dint of his relationship with Christine Keeler, and who's sc- one of those shuttles that moves between the threads. And until we're told not to, I'm going to sit down on these steps. Scandal is on the Scala map. That was produced by Steve Woolley. Well, Steve Woolley was one of the people behind the Scala Cinema Club at King's Cross, which our Scala map is named after, as is Scalarama, the Scalarama Festival, yes, well, which is happening in September. Like I say, the, the threads are all gathered by various shuttles. It's a rich tapestry. So, John Profumo's butler emerged from one of these doors and... In, 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 imagine someone looking a bit like your mental picture of Jeeves. He, he, he's. Oh, sorry, I mean, not allowed to sit down. Oh, well, we'll just walk up and down then. Sorry, Rod. That's okay. We're You're being, in a radio programme. We're being moved on for health and safety reasons.
being I've told we can't sit down because this is private property. And even on the hottest day of the year, private property takes precedence over people's ability to sit down and make radio shows because though it didn't happen here, yet power remains as it is. So the butler emerged like Jeeves to Profumo's uh, Bertie Worcester and uh, presumably had been sent out by Jack Profumo who said, there's a terrible noise in the street. Go and find out what it is. And he will have come back in and said, Sir, it would appear to be a Nazi marching band from a parallel universe in which Operation Sea Lion succeeded. Oh, said the Minister of Defence. I didn't get a memo about that. It's quite, it's quite reassuring in some ways that after the Suez Crisis, but before uh, the uh, scan- scandal of the, of the last days of Macmillan, it's quite reassuring in some ways that John Profumo, the war minister, would have just been sort of rather unfazed by the fact that there were Nazis marching past his house. Yes, I mean, you know, oh well, carry on. Just keep calm and carry on. Uh, oh, it's that, that famous unflappability of the British upper classes. So because after all they know that a few of them might get shot by a Nazi invasion from a parallel universe but mostly mostly they'd be left in place because that's how it works and that's the point about it happened here there's a sense in which if it happened here it would just be the same and speaking of parallel universes Shruti Narayan Swami we watched it happened here the other evening to research for this show and now we are walking down Chester Terrace, where this scene was filmed. We're walking past another blue plaque. Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir John Maitland Salmond, 1881-1968, RAF commander. Yeah. Somebody yeah, served in World War II. 36 never heard of him. Does it seem believable to you as a, an Indian displaced to... United Kingdom that could such a thing occur could a fascist invasion succeed I mean if it had to succeed anywhere it'd probably be this place in Chester Terrace but you do get the sense that if something like that did happen people living behind these black doors probably would be alright it's a very sort of uh, quiet but extremely well appointed. Oh, I mean, yes. severely well yes. appointed. There are a lot of jeeps and flash motors. Yes. Well, and if the Nazis found it too hot to, and wanted to sit on the stairs, they'd probably be shooed away by someone. So. Quite right too. We don't, we don't want not, don't want uh, riffraff, brown shirts clashing the place up. So we've been uh, tidied away from Chester Terrace and we've retreated to Regent's Park. But since it is August and the weather's very nice, this is quite a good place for us to sit and listen to a a G.K. Chesterton poem. Yes. Now, this isn't from the Napoleon of Notting Hill. This is from a rather more sinister dystopian novel by Chesterton, which is a strange mixture of class hatred and what we would now call Islamophobia, because his assumption is that 
the temperance movement is a front for the desire of the aristocracy to have unlimited access to women while stopping the working the lower orders drinking of course they don't stop drinking themselves and uh, they use uh, a couple of Islamic preachers to to push this line and to persuade the municipal authorities to shut down one public house after another on what we would now call health and safety grounds it's a rather nasty and creepy book but needless to say it has good bits uh, the pl plot is basically the, it's called the flying in because the, the owner of the last pub in London in last pub in England goes on the run with a barrel of beer and several bottles of booze and rides around, runs around the English countryside with two or three of his randomly selected mates, and one of whom, a poet, uh, starts talking about the, the English countryside. I mean, in fact, this poem is undercut by another poem in which the publican says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, because it's actually like this. Um, and that's a poem where, which just consists of a string of reasons why, 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 why British roads go in all directions. But that's the realist version of this romantic version, which is rather lovely. The Rolling English Road, 1913, by G.K. Chesterton. Before the Roman came to Rye, or out to Seven strode, the Rolling English drunkard made the Rolling English Road, a reeling road, a rolling road that rambles round the Shire. And after him the parson ran, the sexton and the squire, a merry road, a mazy road, and such as we did tread, the night we went to Birmingham by way of Beachy Head. We knew no harm of Bonaparte and plenty of the squire, and for to fight the Frenchmen I did not much desire. But I did bash their bagonets because they came arrayed to straighten out the crooked road an English drunkard made, where you and I went down the lane with old mullugs in our hands the night we went to Glastonbury by way of Goodwin Sands. His sins, they were forgiven him. Or why do flowers run behind him and the hedges all are strengthening in the sun? The wild thing went from left to right and knew not which was which, but the wild rose was above him when they found him in the ditch. God pardon us nor harden us. We did not see so clear the night we went to Bannockburn by way of Brighton Pier. My friends, we will not go again or ape an ancient rage or stretch the folly of our youth to be the shame of age, but walk with clearer eyes and ears the path that wandereth and see undrugged in evening light the decent inn of death. For there is good news yet to hear and find things to be seen before we go to paradise by way of Kinsel Green. Now there are names in that poem which are very dear to my heart. Beachy Head, Brighton Pier, being from Brighton, my yeah. grandparents used to live in Seaford, which was of course one of the places that was defended with the GHQ line to uh, prevent sea line from happening. When I was a, a small child I remember playing on the dragon's teeth, the huge concrete X shapes that were still on Seaford Beach that were there to prevent flat bottom boats from landing. 
what's the relationship between that poem and a piece of prose which is probably more familiar to listeners which is Churchill's famous speech about um, that we'll fight them on the beaches oh um, well I mean there's there is an apocalyptic patriotic voice in their way The German invasion of England took place in July 1940 after the British retreat from Dunkirk. Strongly resisted at first, the German army took many months to restore order. But the resistance movement, lacking outside support, was finally crushed. For three years it lay dormant. Collaboration increased as the population became adjusted to the tedium of occupation. Then in 1944 the resistance movement reappeared, strongly reinforced and rearmed by America. On the Eastern Front, a breakthrough by the Red Army and the Urals meant the withdrawal of every available soldier from the forces of occupation throughout Europe. England was therefore garrisoned only by British volunteer SS legions and a small number of German troops. Reichsender Köln auf der Frequenz 91,8 MHz mit dem Wehrmachtbericht. England. Das Oberkommando West gab heute Morgen die folgende Meldung. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. So that was us present and correct near Regent's Park. That strange Palladian area where you, you, you see... An alternate London that was that was built for very rich people to sneer at everyone from. But we were doing our bit for national unity, and I um, mean, the country's got to pull itself together. We we don't have the luxury of debate and discussion and democracy. Oh, don't! This is all too worrying. I'm... But we you know we now have Prime Minister May, the Nickelion lady and we also have foreign secretary boris johnson who 
the other day was booed by um, the French on Bastille Day for calling for political union. Uh, join me finally in wishing a long and ever a long and happy partnership between our two countries, and, and dare I venture to say, dare I venture to say, a a, a political, cultural, psychological, and economic union. And when you rewatch the newsreel that appears in It Happened Here, in light of Boris's uh, political union with France speech, it's very uncomfortable. For at last, the world's two great nations are united in more than race. From the crowd surges the cry, Germany and England, union for strength. Yes, well, I, I mean, any Boris Johnson speech is very uncomfortable um, because... You, you catch those little beady eyes looking, thinking, what can I do with this? I remember once he was marching at the front of Pride when I was also marching at the front of Pride because it was the GLF reunion. And he was mayor, to be fair. He was mayor, and I just thought... He was wandering around, shaking everyone's hand and being charming, and I thought, there is no way I'm going to let myself be charmed by Boris Johnson, or better, or worse yet be seen in a photograph shaking his hand. So I constantly <laughs> circled to avoid him. Well, to help us make sense of all of this, uh, whether it, in fact it has happened here, I'm absolutely delighted that our guest today is a familiar voice to Resonance listeners. Uh, he's been on a couple of our mate James DC's shows. Right. Hello, James, if you're listening. Hello. A Atomic Bark, which you can still find on YouTube. Um, well, I mean, what can I say about our guest? Pat Mills. The great, the good, the inventive, the creative, the warrior for radicalism in comics. And uh, this is what uh, Thrill Power Overload, 2018, the first 30 years by David Bishop, has to say about the beginnings of uh, Pat Mills' work in comics that led to 2018 when he was a young editor and was editing Battle and Action of, of Blessed Memory. Mm. So... This is from David Bishop's book. When Warrior became a hit, IPC had to respond. Sanders, this is the editor of IPC, Sanders ignored the available editors on his staff, believing them mired in tradition. Some had been working there since before World War II, making them poor choices to deliver a gritty new spin on blazing comic tales. Instead, the publisher turned to a young freelancer, Pat Mills. He talks a lot and he talks sense, Sanders said. He talks a lot and he talks sense. Hello, well, Pat Mills. <laughs> <laughs> Come Hi guys. Talk to us. Talk a lot. Talk from Spain. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it happened here. Brilliant, brilliant movie. And uh, I, I'm just sad that it wasn't um, a hit at the time and therefore didn't lead to other comparable films. Yet, in a sense, it was ahead of its time because now we have the technology to do this sort of thing. It's a precursor of crowdfunded art in a real sense because it was put together on a shoestring over a long period of time because that's the only way they could pay to do it. Um, so can we talk a little bit about how it was put together and how it was made? 
Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm aware of the uh, the background of the film, and uh, uh, I rate it as one of my uh, top five films. It's it's one that I, I, I look for any reason to watch, maybe once or twice a year, because there's still things in it that uh, that, that I discover, and uh, it, it's an astonishing achievement. Yeah. Well, c- tell me more. Tell me more about okay the, the about process. Make- Okay, well, um, the uh, as I understand it, they uh, they had a shoestring budget, um, and they used um, non non actors to uh, play the different roles. And I think Andrew Muller um, had a had a uh, an expert on costumes and uh, weaponry of the period, and so on. And that's one of the things that really comes through in the. Uh, uh, the movie is the authenticity of it. It feels scarily uh, real. Um, I think they also uh, took advantage of the uh, changing face of London at the time. So there's a there's a very poignant scene in the movie uh, where the heroine is walking past uh, uh, what uh, what seems to be um, a, a vast uh, ruined. Landscape of London, possibly because of demolition, but in the context of the film, it looks like uh, this is where uh, you know the bombs have been dropping and so on. And it's very moving and and very powerful for for that reason. Um, there's great attention to detail in the movie. Yes. Well, when we were talking about David Bowie a few weeks ago, uh, one of the points that I found myself making was that the London. I grew up in in the 50s and that Bowie grew up in in the 50s was a London where there were still ruins, where there were still grey me- messes of, of rubble with uh, brightly coloured ruin flowers uh, growing out of them. And it has that feel. It's also the fact that that sequence is accompanied by what, in a German context, was the music of defeat because the soundtrack at that point isn't the jolly German marching songs. It's Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. It's exactly the music that in the dying days of the Third Reich was constantly on the radio. I'm glad you mentioned that, because, yes, the music in that particular scene really does help to make make it uh, work so well. Yeah, I mean, because everyone tends to go on about Hitler and Wagner, but people also forget the extent to which Hitler was also... An enthusiastic f- fan of the abs- more abstract music of uh, of Anton Bruckner, uh, which is has that unique notice of note of devastation to it. Yes, and and there's there's that detail in the film as well. I where you have uh, the German soldiers uh, behaving like tourists, and and so they're yes. going through. A monument where I, I think there's some recognition of uh, some German uh, composers or writers. I couldn't tell you yes, offhand. Well, it's, it's, it's the Albert. It's the Albert Memorial. Oh yes, of course, yes. Um, which, which of course has uh, the great thinkers of the world all over, including the German ones, because of course Prince Albert was German and was part of German culture, and so of course the Albert Memorial has Bach. 
a Mozart on it. I think they, there's a very subtle touch, I think, because they, they sort of look away slightly embarrassedly because I think uh, that you know, the next composer in the line w- w- would be Mendelssohn, who, of course, was verboten. <laughs> Ah, uh, you know, it's those little details. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I should look out for it next I time. I may be wrong about that. I only had a second to check and I thought, <laughs> hang on. Because, of course, Mendelssohn was very much a friend of Victoria and Albert. He was not quite their court composer, but was a composer they felt genuine warmth for and warmth with. But isn't it, remarka- isn't it remarkable that the, uh, these two guys, Brownlow and Mollow, uh, in their early 20s at the time, uh, had that um, that level of subtlety, that, that level of detail in the film. I mean, I, I'm, I think what I was like in my early 20s, I mean, I, I didn't know a damn thing, and all that would have been completely lost to me. These are two very thoughtful guys, yeah. and uh, they, they put together... Uh, a film that uh, has all those levels that we've discussed uh, in terms of the music and the the recognition of the the art from from Germany and so on, and they presented um, a very balanced uh, view, which I, I think is perhaps one of the reasons why it didn't necessarily it didn't go down so well with a British audience because. Um, uh, I, I, we bought the DVD for my father-in-law and he watched it and he was quite cross afterwards. He said, it wouldn't happen here. It wouldn't happen here. Uh, we, we, would, uh, we, we wouldn't have behaved like that. Well, all the evidence is to the contrary from the Channel Islands and, and from uh, elsewhere in Europe. And I'm just amazed at their maturity, their sophistication, that they they could put together such a balance that... Uh, uh, film and also at the same time have German marching bands going down the Strand and past um, Mr. Profumo's house and so yeah. forth. Well, it's also that that that's very sophisticated sense of of the of the comfort zone of German culture. The fact that the jolly songs have to some extent replaced what we what would have gone on what was actually going on in England in the 40s and 50s, which is utterly different. Um, and yet, you know, there were other things that were going on in Germany that it, you know, it's not perfect. You can imagine that there would be the equivalent of the Edelweiss pirates, you know, that that secret culture of kids, kids who at risk to their own lives would listen to, you know, bootleg swing music. Yeah, no, yeah. No. I mean, there, I there would be that culture as well as the more obvious forms of resistance. But you know, it can't do everything. I mean, you can imagine an even better version of it, but it's so stunning. I mean, it's little scenes like the fact that because it's a foreign country and they don't have to obey the rules, the German troops struggling to get on a tube train all try and get into the same carriage in a way that they would never do in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> because, because they're in a foreign country, so they don't have to obey the rules. Let's listen to a clip from It Happened Here. Let's listen to uh, Social Awkwardness, British fascist style. Right, next please. Morning. Morning. Why haven't you joined before? Well, I was living in the country as a district nurse there. You're not a British national? No, I was born in Ireland. 
I was hoping to continue with ordinary nursing, but I've seen an IA officer. And after what's happened, I've made the decision to join. I've decided I can't stand on the sidelines any longer. We don't accept your decisions. You accept ours. Now, it says here that you will be a nurse with the IA, and that is what you will be, providing your physical fit. So there you have a very sort of, in the 1950s, sort of quite normal, prim moment of social awkwardness, but, but uh, with the added uh, factor of uh, the state asks the questions. Yes, and, but also that wonderful clash of, cl- of class cultures. You know, it, it, it's making a point that one of the things that ordinary people are used to are people with prim voices like mine telling them what to do. Au contraire. Well, yeah. I mean, it's 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 very English and very, and slightly sinister because you you know that uh, one of the things that the Germans managed to exploit in countries where they did dominate for a while was existing class class tensions. Uh, it's funny you should mention uh, flat and Teutonic vowels as a kind of residual. Uh, part of English cadence because another clip I picked out was this one where you have uh, I presume the Übergruppenführer of Wilston Green is uh, addressing a British fascist rally but just listen to uh, how he how he inflects his vowels and how much it's like listening to uh, Edward VII mm-hmm. doing, a, doing a radio broadcast This has been a long and arduous course It has been a most successful course, and my first task, therefore, must be to congratulate each and every one of you. In your practical work, you've shown great enthusiasm. In your tests and all the work, you've shown not only enthusiasm, but the fact that your feet are on the ground. This is an age of leadership and courage. And I'm quite confident that when you go from here, you will set an example that is hard to beat. Many of you will be seeing the world for the first time. Well, Mr Chumley Warner, here we are, and I believe Cheam is now uterine. Well, of course, the other person, it sounds like, is Field Marshal Montgomery. Uh, because when I was writing Montgomery as a character in one of my novels a while back, I spent ages just playing YouTube clips of Montgomery. And his voice is slightly higher and squeakier, but it's that same intonation. It's the way that the oddest words have, 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 have strange diphthongs in them. It's, I mean, unlike Edward VIII, it's not quite the thing. <laughs> because it, That's very interesting, the way that his his voice comes over it, it feels so authentic and uh, you probably know that, uh, that they actually used um real fascists yes. in mm. uh, in the film and that's why their arguments are delivered with such conviction yes and though it's never stated explicitly i think you you know this better than i it's strongly implied that the uh, that that Oswald Mosley is in charge. Yes, there's that moment where Pauline the nurse is uh, 
going for her first interview to try and get her accreditation. And there's a picture on the wall which it could be um, one of the vorticists, but uh, it, I've, we assume it's a sort of balding Mosley. And you look at that and you just go, yeah, if that's Mosley, his son has just funded Tom Watson's office. Now, 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 don't draw Im- implications <laughs> from that. I'm told his sons are very embarrassed reformed, by him. Reformed character. Um, in spite of it's not just him, it's their mother as well. Um, so what about the performances in this film? Because one of the things which is extraordinary uh, to me about watching this film by Kevin Brownlow, which took them eight years to make on 16 mil, is I think when, we, when Shruti and I watched it last night, we were struck by two things. One was this kind of wonderful percussive way that it's it's cut because they shot it on a Bolex, the same way that Lindsay Anderson and the Free Cinema people were making wonderful films on our Scala map, like We Are the Lambeth Boys, on this this clockwork wind-up camera. Uh, because they had to make it over such a long period of time, it captures all kinds of details, like the people lining up in Trafalgar Square, and some of them have got Brill Cream quiffs, because we're into the 50s. It looks a lot like Carnival of Souls. It looks a lot like Night of the Living Dead, because it's got that gritty 50s quality about it. Yeah, every, everyone's slightly grainy, which means that everyone looks slightly malnourished and slightly grubby. But also because they shot it over such a long period of time, uh, you had actors, particularly, the, I suppose, the two stars of it, Pauline Murray and Sebastian Shaw, had to uh, give those performances and give continuity to their characters, particularly Pauline Murray, over mm. eight years. It's an extraordinary achievement. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And... And she just inhabits that deeply compromised, deep, deeply conflicted character so consistently and so well. I mean, there's a sense, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I mean, you will both be able to tell me about this, how much of Sebastian Shaw's material was, was shot all at one time. I think, it, I think Pauline Murray was the person who had to keep coming back year after year, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Her performance is... Just astonishing, and and somehow I think the fact that uh, she's Irish adds something to it. I'm not quite sure why. Very much. Um, but but it, it her her, her um, intonation is um, is is quite special, and, and it, she's such a memorable character. And again, I, I come back to the fact that uh, these are guys in their twenties, and they're not going for. Uh, what could have easily been a, a glamorous uh, young heroine? They they could have gone down that road, yeah. and arguably, uh, I mean, I've, I, I keep thinking, what could, they, what could they have done to have made this a hit? What could they? And the only thing I can think of, which um, would wouldn't, of course, it wouldn't be the same film, was if they had a Rita Tushingham or a Julie Christie in that role. But of course, the thing, the whole thing about the film is it doesn't compromise. But I would argue it's still incredibly entertaining. Um, you know, it, it, it's not an art house film, uh, to my way of thinking, or, uh, although it's a 60s film, uh, I, I think it's it has as much entertainment value as uh, as as any uh, 60s well, yes, classic. The other thing about it is, is that it avoids a lot of the obvious, it avoids heroics, it avoids... Yep. Um, I mean, remember, Noel Coward uh, wrote, wrote a play, uh, Englishman's Castle, uh, about, about a conquered Britain. And it's not like that. I mean, one of the other films 
we might talk about later if we have time is is went the day well which is a heroic film about resistance to to, to the nazis yes. and which makes it all come right in a way that this is not going to come right even when we see the the partisans reclaiming tracts of the country they've let something into themselves they they massacre they compromise with collaborators like Pauline uh, because she's a nurse. She gets to survive when she's captured. They, you know, they just put her to work. And it's the sense that this is going to go on being quite a nasty place, this Britain. Sebastian Shaw has that uh, monologue where he talks about what is necessary to yeah. defeat fascism. Yes, well, I mean, as, as a while ago, I, there was an argument on, on social media about the defeat of fascism, and I said, historically, the thing that's defa- defeated fascism has been the Red Army. <laughs> well, that, that neatly brings us on, Pat, because we're talking about uh, voices and the cadence of voices. The influence that I can see in your body of work uh, of it happened here. Now, when we talk about Pat Mill's body of work... It's so much material yes. um, that, you know, possibly I'm actually just seeing a pattern where there is none. But I noticed, for example, when I was looking at um, uh, my collected copy of uh, the Doctor Who weekly comic strips, the very... And I remember buying this in the newsagent, and now I'm talking to the guy who wrote it. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> my, I, my eight-year-old self, would, would, his mind would be being blown at this moment. But that opening splash panel of the Iron Legion... They fought their way across a thousand planets, robot veterans of the eternal war, destroying with ruthless discipline all who stood in their way. And you've got this fantastic splash panel of mechanised Roman legionaries. And in the background, there's this tower. It could be, is that the White Tower at the Tower of London? Or is it uh, just a little, a lovely Norman church in a lovely English yes. village? It's something. The Silent Village, perhaps. The Silent Village. Um... We well, can we, cut, we cut from that page on, onto the next page where, uh, if memory serves, uh, it's a, a humble, very typical uh, British tobacconist and newsagent. Um, so very much in the style of it happened here. Your work in comics had that same graininess, that same grittiness, even if sometimes it was self-parodying slightly, you know, as in, oh, God, be... be is it be strong, be vigilant, behave? Um, it's, no, it's talk, uh, nemesis, yes. be pure, be vigilant. Ah, that's behave. it, that's it, yes. Um, and we've also got to talk about the Volgans, the Volgans in Invasion in 2000 AD. I believe they first appeared in Mac 1, which was the, the Bionic Man influence strip. But these were the recurring pseudo fascist, pseudo Soviet, semi, we presume, Ukrainian forces that you imagine in the 70s. Another thing 2000 AD got wrong, like the soft block. You'd never get a resurgent Russian empire, now the Burning Walls fall. Ho, ho, ho. That's crazy talk. (laughs) You'd never get fascist Ukrainians. You'd never get a Russia run by a, a Bond villain who has people. I mean, imagine a plot where the dictator of Russia is complicit in drugging athletes to win at sports. Who would ever th- believe a story like that? And, and could... Uh, it's comic book stuff. A Charles Bronson 70s character like Bill Savage with his 12-gauge shotgun blasting his way through uh, armies of Volgans. 
I mean, you know, in this enlightened age, could you possibly imagine Jason Statham playing that role? Yes, I could, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, on that subject, um, uh, Bill Savage and the Volgans, uh, they, they appeared in um, Prop 1 of 2000 AD, and they're still running today. And one of the sources of inspiration... Uh, I haven't actually gotten around to the U- Ukrainians, and uh, now you've mentioned them, uh, thanks, for, thanks for that. I shall actually have to look them up, because obviously I'm aware of uh, uh, you know, their particular uh, political stance. Uh, but there was, um, there was a guy um, who I used as a major source uh, maybe a decade ago, because as I say, the story's been running for uh, uh, 40 years, which is incredible, really. Um, a guy in Russia called Zero... I don't know if I can get this correct uh, the pronunciation Zhirinovsky um, ZH oh you're uh, the red mercury man yeah now if, if you uh, now his uh, his quotes are such a gift to a comic book writer you can well I, I mean that's prior to all, all the current guys you know like yeah. Donald well, Trump I mean, and so on but I mean, I mean it's the thing comic uh, real life is always much more bonkers than, than anything fiction right I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that but it, it does bear repeating that uh, real life is much more insane than anything we, yeah. we guys could dream of well in the Ukraine you've got both on the Ukrainian side and the pro-Soviet, the pro-Russian side, uh, significant propagandists who are leading figures in the propaganda war, who are both authors of military SF, both of whom write military SF scenarios in which uh, the the heroic people of the Ukraine are being crushed under the Russian heel again, or in which the gallant, embattled Russian Russian people are being tricked by evil Poles as they were in the times at time of troubles. You've got this weird stuff. Uh, there was a very good article in History Today about this, where the time of troubles and the aftermath of, of Ivan Grozny and Boris Godunov is coming back and, and, and Holy Mother Russia is under threat from homosexual Polish warriors. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, it, it's, it's chilling stuff. And I think, uh, uh, as I know uh, a number of Ukrainians uh, quite well, and I'm thinking of one in particular, and uh, my take on that from her perspective, which is exactly the kind of stuff you've described, is that um, often it comes, you know, the kids are brought up from the knee on this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, speaking for myself uh, with an Irish Catholic background, uh, I was told all these terrible things that happened in the past, but certainly in a, in a somewhat vengeful way, shall we, shall we say, yeah. you know, where, where England was concerned. So clearly it's the same with Ukraine, because as I say, my Ukrainian friend, uh, uh, she told me that her, um, her aspiration was to have... Uh, a son, and that he could then uh, fight the great patriotic war for Ukraine. And uh, uh, her, her views were very much along the lines you've described. In fact, some of them I, I couldn't actually repeat. Which brings us very neatly to your, some would say, your masterpiece, which is, of course, a deliberate demystification of all that mythology of the national the national myth of war, which is Charlie's War. So Charlie's War, I, 
absolutely um, uh, loved writing it, and I still miss it. Yeah. Uh, I, and it, it, surprisingly, I well, not surprisingly, really, sadly, it's more relevant today, and it's more hard-hitting today because when it first first came out in the uh, early 80s, um, there was a general consensus view that World War One was a uh, was a shocking event, and that uh, people really needed to know about uh, what went wrong and so forth. Whereas today, uh, with the centenary, it's uh, uh, remembered largely as heroic sacrifice, and any voices of dissent that say otherwise, including the last Tommy Harry Patch, they just edit out anything that's said to the contrary. I so yes, it's, it's, it's utterly, disgust, utterly disgusting. I mean, the way that those people who were misled, who were mistreated, as you show so well, who were oppressed by idiot officers in many cases, some of them very brave, some of them hopelessly incompetent and slightly nuts. Uh, I mean, you know, we've just had the, the, the commemoration of the Somme. And the point is, the Somme is not over. A hundred years later, we still experience the down the generations, the effect of that battle on, on, on British working-class lives. I mean, I know... Absolutely, and as you, you may well know, that uh, the Somme, there have been uh, attempts by historians, and I, I suppose successful attempts, to their shame, uh, by leading uh, British historians to present uh, the Somme uh, as a victory. In fact, um, I, I think uh, the BBC did a documentary, uh, what was it called, uh, The Somme um, from, from Defeat to Victory. Uh, so, um, despite Blackadder, which historians absolutely loathe, by the way, uh, historians of World War One, you can almost feel them spitting venom at uh, Blackadder because of its uh, anti-war stance. And so, yeah, the, the, the general consensus now is uh, that the Somme apparently uh, was, it was a victory, which uh, is so shameful uh, because they know otherwise and they've really, uh, they, you know, whatever motivates them, they, they've just decided to uh, um, go in for this kind of Orwellian um, black is white uh, uh, principle where, where they're describing. Well, it's uh, the not song. really surprising because it's all about the revisionism of figures like ooh, Neil Ferguson, who want to rewrite history in their own image, who want to write a history that suits with the likes of Michael Gove, where it's a heroic narrative in which the British always did the right thing and the British upper class could be trusted to, to control it in the right way and not let grubby little people with who might have beards and sandals and, and allotments, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, you can't have those people running things. Heavens! Because yeah, and, and and those are the people like Neil Ferguson who will get published. Those are the people who Random House uh, will uh, will publish. And uh, if you step outside those tram lines, you are not going to get published, and you are not going to get reviewed. And there are books out there, uh, like Hidden History, for example, by two Scottish uh, writers. Uh, I think it's Doherty and Maguire, which s present a completely different point of view. Uh, I think it came out from mainstream, and um, 
they got no reviews in the UK. You know, The Guardian, The Independent, and so on, didn't review it. So no one knows about it unless you, uh, you know, you, you, you really sort of look along the um, bookshelves, as I did in foils, and saw it tucked away at the back and read it and thought, yeah, this, is, this ties in with what I know about World War I. Why doesn't everyone know about this? And no, that's how, that's how the truth is suppressed. And it's deliberate and it's very consciously done. Uh, I mean, for example, you have, uh, I think, last time I counted, I think it was four uh, revisionist biographies of General Haig. Uh, I think one of them was called The Good Soldier, uh, and the others are in a similar uh, vein. Now, who on earth wants to read uh, biographies of General Haig anyway? Uh, so, uh, but anyhow, there's four of them been out, and I think the last... Uh, 10 or 12 years. I mean, um, and so clearly, you know, that's the establishment saying on some level, uh, you know, Haig is the one that, uh, that everyone tends to focus on as this uh, uh, incompetent uh, butcher but and uh, present, another, uh, present another view of him. Here's the interesting thing. Ferguson is wearing one of his other hats, one of the prime advocates of the importance of counterfactual history, and in, in fairness to him, counterfactual history, alternate history, things like it happened here as a way of understanding historical process. It's the one thing one can say in favour of him is that he is aware of the possibility of rewinding contingencies to look at what they reveal about the truth. And one of the truths that it happened here reveals is the truth that uh, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle reveals, um, which is there's a point in Man in the High Castle where they're discussing their own alternate history narrative in the, uh, in the book, it's a novel, in the recent television show, it's a film. And there's this sense that what they're learning is that in this world where the Germans won, actually the Germans lost, that... In a sense, the truth is that we won the war in our world, but it, the world of it happened here, where things are controlled by petty-minded, nasty-minded, little middle-class people who worship power, is also true at the same time. There is a sense in which the, 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 the reason why Brownlow's German-occupied Britain strikes such a chord is that it's true. And there's that very chilling sequence in the, the newsreel, which on the, the DVD they have the whole of the newsreel footage, which Pauline goes into the cinema and watches, where you have this revisionist take on the history leading up to World War II, the history of the black shirts, but they even go back to the Somme, to, to World War I, and you see uh, the famous Christmas kickabout. And one of the very, yes. very clever um, ways that uh, it's directed is that you have not only the kind of the alternate history cosplay of World War One, where they actually reshoot German and, and uh, German soldiers and Tommies on the, on the front, but you also have it bookended with um, pack up your troubles in your old, old kit bag, and at the start it's in English, and at the end of that sequence it's in German. Hmm. You have a, a Christmas foot, 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 soccer knockabout sequence in Charlie's War. Could you talk about that for a, just a second as a counter, counter view? 
Yes. Um, I, I wish, in fact, uh, that um, when I was writing Charlie's War, my, my knowledge and my research was limited by what was available at the time. And I would have liked to have covered uh, some of the, uh, the later truces, because one of the myths of World War I is that there was just this one truce in uh, in 1914, Christmas 1914, and, and that was it. Uh, not so. There were unofficial truces that went on the whole time. And I think that, that fraternization between the two sides uh, really makes a very strong anti-war point. But in Charlie's War, what I, what I actually had was a, a, a tragedy where, uh, to some extent, based on uh, the reaction of the officer class to the truce, where they ordered bombardments on Boxing Day or whatever. And so in a similar way, uh, th there's a truce, the, uh, the Germans come over, and I think uh, the, uh, the, the, the bad guy in Charlie's War, um, Lieutenant Snell, um, uh, makes sure that, uh, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a kind of massacre against the whole spirit of, uh, of, of, of Christmas. And... Uh, uh, but uh, there, there, there's so much more to to these uh, Christmas uh, to the Christmas truce. Uh, uh, the French film Joyeux Noël, uh, although it's very romantic, uh, I think does uh, touch on some real hard truths there. And uh, there, there was a lot of fraternisation uh, between the two sides. Something that I actually wanted to get onto in an abortive sequel to Charlie's War, where I showed uh, the. Uh, the the uh, the generals on both sides were fraternizing. They were trading with each other. Uh, German, um, uh, um, you know, there was official trade between Germany and Britain. I think uh, Britain was supplying rubber, and the Germans were supplying uh, binoculars and lenses for sniper rifles and so on, and a lot more besides. And then at the um, you know, at the ground level between the troops, you know, they're, they're sending over sausages and, uh, and, and fags and so forth. And I really wanted to make the point that, you know, that, that's the natural human instinct, uh, whether you happen to be upper class or working class. There are those extraordinary photographs from before the sea lion invasion plan to in, invade Britain. In It was assumed it was going to go ahead in September 1940. It didn't actually happen, but... Um, that's kind of partly what it happened here is based on. But before that phase in the war, there was this extraordinary period where the, the officers in the Wehrmacht, the Third Reich, just wanted to share the world with England. And you have these photographs of uh, German officers dressed up um, like um, Bertie Wooster and mm. fox hunting. Also, another very interesting uh, film fact to do with this phase of the war, the most popular... German film. This is a period where, oh, yes. in the war, um, Goebbels' propaganda ministry was making films that were entertaining. He was making musicals. Uh, you know, his favourite film was Gone with the Wind. The most successful German film in that early part of the war was The Man Who Was Sherlock Holmes. There's a murder on a train, and there's two people who solve it. They speak in German, they are German, but they're dressed as Holmes and Watson. Yes, well, I mean, up to, up to the point of the, the, cri the, the accumulating crises that led to, to, to World War I, there was huge fraternisation between 
an upper class that was largely a unitary thing. I mean, never forget in whose arms Queen Victoria died. It's the Kaiser. Oh, really? Yeah, he was, uh, at, her he was at her deathbed along with her... You know, remember, he was her grandson, and he was at around the deathbed with her other grandsons and with her son, and... Because he was, you know, it just happened that at the point when he, he, she died, he was the one holding her up. Oh, my goodness. And, and just 12 years later, you had that's, the Great War. That's right. Just, uh, and I mean, just... yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 one, of the, one of the factors in all of this, uh, you know, because psych, psycholo individual psychology is sometimes relevant, was the fact that Wilhelm always felt that his grandmother didn't love him enough <laughs> because he was the disappointing son of her beloved daughter and beloved son-in-law who'd who died young and he felt she'd never forgiven him for the for the death of his father who who died surprisingly surprisingly young of uh, of peritonitis and he, resent, he, he both loved her and resented her and deeply resented his uncle and his, his cousin. And the fact that it was a family war is, is something that needs to be remembered too. As in a sense, World War II started off being. The other thing, of course, is remember the German theory of Blitzkrieg in World War II very much derived from the theories of uh, Fuller. The, British, the yes. British military historian and theoretician, who was, of course, a fascist and also a friend of Alastair Crowley's, but we won't go into that. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. Night of the Demon, in fact. <laughs> yes. When we do that. Oh, that's going to be fun. Um, but you know, the whole idea of the lightning war is a theory produced by a British, a, a British thinker which um uh and you know, who was immensely influential both in france and in germany and of course would have been influential in soviet russia except that the officers who were followers of fuller all got or all, all got got murdered by stalin in 38. but that's you know, i mean it's true that a bayonet is a, is a weapon with a worker at both ends but there's this very odd relationship between the military castes at the, you know, further up the tree. It's very strange. Yeah, the, the, the whole subject of fraternising with the enemy and trading with the enemy uh, during conflicts uh, is one that uh, personally uh, fascinates me. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's so much evidence that uh, it really was business as usual uh, during these actual conflicts. And that you know, is really played down, uh, uh, well, certainly in the education system, because otherwise it, it makes a complete mockery of war. Uh, but uh, certainly in World War I, uh, there was considerable trading with the enemy during the conflict, and, uh, and actually a lot more besides. And therefore, it just really makes you think, this whole thing really is even more ridiculous than is generally accepted. But at the same time, one of the ways they coped with that was by spreading atrocity myths that were not entirely myths. I mean, the Germans had 
both sides had committed amazing atrocities in their colonial empires. And what they did was bring those myths home. And both sides accusing the other of things they had actually done to non-Europeans. I think that the really sad thing is, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would challenge... uh, uh, some of those uh, events, others uh, have been, um, you, you know, ramped up. Uh, I mean, for example, I think there's um, stuff about uh, uh, crucifying Canadian soldiers at Passchendaele uh, I, I, and things like that, that I think is uh, is very much in doubt. Using um, nuns as the clappers of bells. Uh, yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff. But, but what, what, of course, is missing from our British perception is what British soldiers uh, did. And the, 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 the general view is, is, of course, well, they were never like this. And, uh, but you don't even have to go as far as, uh, you know, our empire uh, to find out that's not true. For example, uh, during the British invasion of Russia in 1919, uh, there's really documented evidence of the most revolting um, atrocities uh, by um, British officers and British British troops, uh, because that's what sadly soldiers do in 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 conflicts. And one of the scenes in it happened here, which is really harrowing, is towards the end where you see the partisans uh, initially meeting fascist troops somewhere in the West Country, waving a white flag, and they just gun them down. It's, uh, I mean, I wanted to bring the discussion back to the film. It happened here, um, Kevin Brownlow's 16mm yeah. film that it took him eight years to make, and he started incredibly when he was 18, by talking about its, its legacy. And one of its legacies, I think, is the style of its cinematography. Kevin Brownlow's gone on to be uh, mainly a film historian, but, of course, the cinematographer over that eight-year period was Peter Szyzynski. Now, Peter Szyzynski's CV is not only extraordinarily accomplished but it includes many of the films on our scala map uh, Ooh, and i, I can I, I commend uh, his his work to you in this regard he has been cinematographer on that'll be the day Ooh, the david essex uh, early rock and roll film the rocky horror picture show good lord the empire strikes back of course krull with todd carty and robbie coltrane and freddie jones dear me and of course, <laughs> Mars attacks, and the list goes on. So, I mean, one of the very striking images from it happened here, and I hope this works on radio if we if we set it up and describe it properly. Is it cuts to this shot of of, of this what looks like a kind of huge white barn or a church hall, and there's this and there's this light suffusing through a skylight, and then you hear this gentleman explaining fascist ideology, but all the time bathed in Peter Szyzynski's beautiful use now, of natural light. British people who are brought up in an atmosphere of apathy towards political ideas, the National Socialist creed may seem startling, even abhorrent. But when you meet such apathy, what I want you to show these people is that National Socialism offers them a new philosophy, a new way of life. Now, is that all clear? Further points? Murray? Those without potential are of no use to the state. Yes, this is certainly true. We can have no passengers in our state. 
The true citizen of our state has certain rights, but also corresponding duties. The rights include educational benefits, cultural benefits, protection, and a standard of living worthy of our people. Yet, if there are people who fail the state, they will have to be removed with other criminal antisocial elements. It cannot be expected that a better nation should support such human dross. They are useless eaters. To deny this is illogical. So that was a fascist homily from uh, presumably a... a, a Did she just say no rights without corresponding responsibilities? That seems awfully familiar from somewhere. I I can't think (laughs) where from, though. But So Peter Shinsky, you know, he he sets this tableau up and uh, we have this homily delivered in a world in which the, the, the sort of the dullard second son is no longer a, a country parson. He's some kind of fascist ideologue in Wilston Green or Kensal Rise or somewhere like that. Yes. So, Pat, given not only that you're a writer, but that you're, you're primarily writing for a visual medium, for, for comic books, what kind of impact has the film left on you in terms of its visuals, but also the way that Kevin Brownlow and Sajinsky basically used whatever they could find. They had a tank, so and they couldn't actually get the tank to run, so they put it on a trailer and dragged it behind a car. I know that tank story, yes. They, they only had the one tank, but with clever uh, filming, it, it uh, seems so much more, doesn't it? But there's so, there's so much about it happened here, which to me reminds me of being a kid and reading battle and reading action. There is this kind of, I suppose it's a bit of a cliche, but this sort of gritty improvised quality that you gave to those comics, the comics that you edited before 2000 AD, which really comes through from that work, but which also comes through from Brownlow's film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, perhaps, perhaps it's a British uh, element of cynicism. Uh, So, uh, I mean, it happened here is, is a very cynical film. uh, Cynicism, even in itself as a word, you know, it's almost critical these days. Why why do you have to be so cynical? Uh, Well, there's a lot to be cynical about. And I think uh, in a similar way, uh, battle and especially action were very, very cynical. And and that's why action in particular was very threatening to the uh, status quo, because the traditional view of... um, of, of comics um, epitomized by uh, Eagle uh, was that, you know, to have uh, respect for one's betters, that they should always uh, be looked up to, that they're figures uh, uh, to learn from and uh, figures to trust. And the, the message of battle and action and 2080 as well is uh, that, uh, uh, you know, really uh, you should trust yourself and generally speaking, uh, don't trust the establishment. Um, there's, there's, if, if you want that kind of reassurance, there's, there's plenty of reassurance out there for you if you need it. Um, but for people who are challenging, questioning the world they're in, uh, that's what uh, Battle Action and 2000 AD are all about. And of course, that's also uh, what it happened here is all about. It's, it's questioning your reality and, and your value system. And yet, one of the things about It Happened Here is that it does draw on a British documentary tradition 
that existed during the war that was very much a servant of the war, that it has that glorious ambivalence. You know, there are things like, if you look at the difference between um, a completely gung-ho anti-fascist narrative like uh, Silent Village... Mm. Um, Humphrey you've Jennings got film, yeah. The Humphrey Jennings it's film. Ele it's elegant, it's clever, it's elegant. And I think using the very, I think they actually used the same uh, BBC voice commentator. Uh, so we, uh, now I, I don't know his name, but uh, I, I'm sure he's quite a famous chap because I, I recognized his voice instantly on It Happened Here. How they persuaded him to do that, I have no idea. Oh, they probably offered him money. Yeah. Well, they didn't have much, so yeah. uh, they, they, they bought him a drink. It's amazing what the what 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 the British will do for a drink. This is true. This is true. But I mean, but for I mean... those people who don't know it, um, the Silent Village is a documentary about the assassination of Heydrich and the revenge murder of a Czech village, Lidice, that was held accountable for this. You know the women and children. The women were shipped off to concentration camps. The children were shipped off to orphanages if they had the right kind of hair and eyes. Otherwise, not. And the men were just shot out of hand. And what it does is is transfer Lidice as if it were a city in a, a, a town in Wales, and the and the the the, the, the village in Wales, and so. As the menfolk of Lidice are shot, they are a Welsh voice, male voice choir being shot rather than its Czech equivalent. As a way of making the point, this is what we can expect if the Nazis get here, you know. Well, to, to bring this all to the present day, I suppose the question that's posed by the title of the film, It Happened Here, is, well, did it happen here or, or is it happening here? Uh, the, the events on which it's based were these plans which Hitler purportedly had to invade uh, England. It was assumed it was going to happen in September 1914. There was a flap about it. Some people fell down some stairs. But uh, all the GHQ line plans which had been built to repel a, an attempted German invasion, in fact, weren't used. And growing up, I'm from Brighton, and uh, then moved to, to Lewis in the Sussex countryside. All of that stuff that was put there to to resist the german invasion the dragon's teeth on on uh, the beach at seaford below beachy head which chesterton was referring to in yes, that poem at the top of the show um had the german armored divisions landed successfully at cookmerehaven and also at newhaven one of the plans was to join up in brighton where they could have stopped for high tea mm. at the grand hotel perhaps and it's very shocking looking at the uh the list of people that were on the uh, in, in the little booklets that were produced for um, the Wehrmacht and the Waffen SS, people who should be arrested when Sea Lion was was activated. You can find all this in a book called Invasion 1940, written by John Erickson. It's got a lovely picture, of course, from it happened here on the cover of it, and it's got the list of the people who were going to be detained had had the German and, invasion gone and in, presumably shot out of hand, and it includes J. B. Priestley. Well, Noel's. That's, that's not surprising. Noel Coward. That's slightly more surprising. The Boy Scout movement. Well, yes. Uh, and most interestingly for, for music for films, Alexander Corder.
well, Hungarian, you see. But also producing amazing propaganda films like um, The Lion Has Wings, which is our film at uh, Northolt, near to RAF Northolt, and also made all those rousing films like The Thief of Baghdad and The Elephant Boy with Sabu in, which yeah. we've got over in West London. Oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure Goebbels... Goebbels wanted to, presumably wanted to make him an offer he couldn't refuse, just as he had to Fritz Lang. So I suppose the kind of... The joke version of this question, has it happened here, is in that Mitchell and Webb, very funny Mitchell and Webb sketch about SS officers asking, oh, are we the bad guys? Pat Mills, are we the bad guys? Is that what we're becoming in view of this five-fold increase of racist attacks after the Brexit vote and just monstrous things going on in our country? Um, our Prime Minister saying, yes, I would incinerate 100,000 people if I, if I had to. Yeah, I mean... it. Your question suggests that in the past, perhaps we weren't the bad guys. Whereas I see it as a, you know, it's a, there's a continuity there. And it's, you know, this stuff has just raised its head above the parapet and become more obvious, if you like. I mean, it's very ugly. But, yeah, I think it's always been that way. And... Um, you know, there, there, there's, I mean, I, I just just come across this stuff endlessly. I mean, to, to, to give you one example, um, in the, uh, I did a story about uh, the, the British in Kenya uh, featuring the, um, you know, the way they um, dealt with the Mau Mau, which was pretty horrible. And the printers at the time uh, actually refused to, to, to print this issue of this particular comic, uh, Crisis. Um, much, much. And uh, they, they were, you know, I think eventually they reluctantly agreed. So, you know, all, all this kind of, you know, this sort of racist attitudes that, you know, that we, we see today. I mean, it, it's always been around and um, and it, it's all the price uh, we we pay for being part of a. Uh, an empire which I suppose I naively thought at one time uh, had, had disappeared after World War II, but you've only got to hear Boris Johnson and the way he, he speaks that, um, yeah, it, it's just reinvented itself in a, uh, well, I, I, I would like to say a more subtle way, but I'm not sure it actually is very subtle, really. Um, it's it's, yeah. a, it's <laughs> a little subtle when it's Neil Ferguson. It's not even slightly subtle when it's Boris Johnson. Well, if only we had a voice from the former empire to hand to give us the perspective of colonised people, Shruti Narayan Swami. Right, I can now speak for all the colonised people everywhere. <laughs> well, 1.2 1. <laughs> billion people in India. Let's sure. just narrow it down, shall we? Yeah. Um, I'm, but before we talk about the the uh question of whether fascism's on the rise in mother india uh pat you mentioned crisis now if you don't know what crisis is was uh get on ebay go to your nearest comic shop that sells uh vintage comics crisis was this sadly short-lived but a really amazing comic that you did, Pat, where you started to talk about all these questions about anti-colonialism. You started to talk about uh, globalisation as well. Is crisis something that you miss? Yeah, I mean, it, it's meant to be reprinted, uh, but plans seem to be uh, running a bit slow at the moment. In fact, uh, I, I will actually chase the publishers up uh, uh, today, I think. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there are plans for it to be reprinted. I miss it greatly. Um, 
And I suppose from a personal point of view, I always look at these, uh, I look at it happened here and I think, what could have been done to have made that more commercial? Uh, I mean, it, it's a masterpiece and it's perfect in, it, in, in its own right. But the, the thing for me is always, how can we, how can we make these stories uh, appeal uh, on, on a wide level uh, as applied in, in the case of Battle Action 2000 AD? Uh, crisis, to a certain extent, we got it right. We didn't get it completely right. So I suppose I endlessly analyze these things and think, okay, if another opportunity comes along, how do I get it right this time? Uh, you know, how to, how to make these things appealing? Because uh, my basic premise is that the majority of uh, popular culture uh, fiction that uh, uh, appeal to young readers of to many readers of all ages uh, was often invariably written uh, by um, right-wing uh, authors, you know, whether it's John Buchan, uh, Captain W.C. Jones, Dennis Wheatley and uh, Ian Fleming and so on. Um, but there's no reason why uh, we can't uh, look at their dramatic techniques and apply them from a counterculture perspective. Uh, and so that's that's really what I try to do, and I try and encourage other, other writers to do the same thing. In other words, you know, uh, th th these guys were quite polemical in their own way, but they were also they also wrote very exciting stories. I grew up reading them, so I, I like to try to do the same thing. And in the case of Third World War, um, I, I made a very conscious decision to be rather more polemic. Um, and I think, I don't think that was a mistake, uh, but all the time, what, who I'm trying to appeal to is the ordinary reader in the street who might just say, hey, I like reading this because it's a great thriller. And, the other uh, and, and you know, you, if you like, you're subverting them with, uh, you know, the, the, the political subtext. Because that's what Buckham was doing. I mean, he was the spin doctor of World War One. He was the Alistair Campbell of his age. I mean, he was a bloody sight better at it than uh, Alistair Campbell. In other words, Alistair Campbell has been found that he's, you know, um, been found out for what he is. John Buckham never was. He was awarded the governorship of, um, of Canada. But very, very similar um, circumstances between these two guys. The only other person who was doing comics at the same time as uh, Crisis, who was using comics in a similar way as a kind of uh, way of remembering the dialectics of, of recent world history was Alan Moore with uh, Brought to Light, uh, which, yeah. I, which has, I think, largely been forgotten even in Alan Moore's work. I mean, to me, what I think is happening in England, can't necessarily say in Britain, is what I thought was going to happen when the banks collapsed and when I was hanging out at the Occupy process at St Paul's, which I felt that there was this kind of inchoate, anger that was going to manifest in very dark and nasty ways and you could feel it even then but I felt even then and I still feel what we're looking at is not Jurassic Nazis it's not as if Nigel Farage was ever going to leap out from behind a curtain dressed as, as Heinrich Himmler and say haha fooled you we're dealing much more with uh, what I think of as Islamophobic bird flu it's a kind of mimetic intemperance and intolerance that manifests in all kinds of horrible ways but partly for me, what I think is making that possible is people in their 20s don't remember stories about the war. Like my mum, we were talking to my mum after we watched the film. My mum grew up, you know, remembering the London fog. She remembers rationing, but she doesn't remember much of the war because she was, you know, three or four when it was happening. Um, it's that 
way in which people have forgotten, and I think that does have a correlation with India and the time you know I've spent in India over the last couple of years, is that partition, like the World War One, like World War Two, people don't talk about um, the emergency period. You can see that in those angry young man uh, films that Amitabh Bachchan did. Is you know they're trying to talk about something. <laughs> There's a scary mother, but it's not actually vocalised that it's Indira Gandhi. And then you mentioned this very interesting uh, film, which is on a BFI today, a Manto film, which is exactly about this. Uh, it's being screened as part of the London Asian Film Festival. Um, and it's a film based on um, author Sadat Hassan Manto's, uh, possibly um, his most renowned work, Toba Dek Singh. Uh, in which Manto is essentially trying to get across the the futility of the partition and how neither India nor Pakistan have been able to sort of find a way of articulating what it was like to go through that process. And so the main character is a, a Punjabi guy who's in a, a asylum. So, um, I mean, it is not possible to get a sense of Manto's work and unless you know how to read it in Urdu because it was originally Which, written in Urdu. <laughs> not, but to be fair, none of us in this room can speak Urdu, including you. And, you know, Manto is possibly the most widely translated Urdu author, but you can't really get the sense, same sense of it if you read it in Hindi or in English. But the story essentially is India and Pakistan... Um, decide to there, there's a there's a an insane asylum in the middle of the two countries in between the no man's land and both countries decide to um exchange a few of the inmates so uh the muslim inmates would go back to pakistan and the sikh um inmates would go back to india but then there's this character called Pishan singh and he doesn't remember where he's from uh, so no one knows what to do with him. And the novel essentially ends with him sort of lying in the no man's land and no one knows what to do with him. And uh, it's it's very much... Uh, it evokes, very clearly evokes the sense of we still haven't figured out how to talk about either the partition or India's um, complex relationship with Pakistan, or uh, and that that is, or our relationship with Germany, or well, our relationship with yes, France, sorry. or Brazil's relationship with Argentina. I mean, the, you can see the same story, where the next generation isn't told about the horrors of the war by their grandparents, and then are we, Ros, Pat, are we doomed to repeat it? Probably. Um, uh, I, I suppose on 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 some level, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess. Uh, how it seems to be now is that uh, European uh, conflicts um, seem to be over. Although, uh, you know, when you look at uh, what's happening with Ukraine and so on, there, there's still a question oh. mark there. Oh. Um, if things that happened in the 17th century can be weaponized in Russia and the Ukraine as a national myth of betrayal and aggression and rape, I mean... Anything can be weaponized anywhere at any time. All it needs is for... And that's sometimes not... I mean, there are national myths that are positive. I mean, there's the way that in the late 19th century, 
Um, the nascent socialist movement weaponized the peasants' revolt. The Rocky Road. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you the dream of John, you know, William Morris's the dream of John Ball. I mean, the dead past isn't dead; it's not even past. And all the the Napoleonic invasion uh, anxiety, which are in that is in that Chesterton poem that that you yes, read that, at Regent's Regent's Park at the start. That mythology produced uh, Byronic poetry. It also produced the Long Man of Wilmington, which is a, a folly that was created, uh, imagining what would our past have been like now that we've um, seen off Boney. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can go back, um, uh, well, you can go back uh, uh, millennia, really. Um, you know, the, the, the promised land for, 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 for the Jewish uh, people and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always available to uh, rake things up and uh, stir up nationalism and, and xenophobia and so on. What did the Romans ever do for us, eh? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I suppose uh, I, suppose I um, in a sense, am guilty of that because when I uh, do uh, the, the, this Celtic hero, Slonya, Slain, um, you know, it, it's taking a very anti-Roman perspective. I, I like to think it is, you know, portraying the Celtic other. But, uh, yeah, I mean, all these forces are very powerful and... Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think one has to be very careful how one well, uses them. The anti-Roman thing is very necessary because you've got that whole right-wing myth of being conquered by the Romans being the best thing that ever happened because you know, yes. we got yes. conquered. It was very good for us. And that's that's our justification for conquering other people because it will be very good for them. It's like it, It's like being bullied in the lower fourth. You get to you get to bully people when you're in the sixth form. It's it's just the same thing. Well, speaking as a born again Scot, um, and uh, with my friend and colleague Shruti Narayan Swami sitting beside me, what have the English ever done for us, Shruti Narayan Swami? <laughs> yeah, and what did the, what what did the British do for do for do do for us? Well, the. Scots upper class shipped my 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 farm labourer Scottish Scots ancestors down to Norfolk without much say in the matter, and uh, the English landlords uh, picked my my Irish ancestors to be their their pet Irish uh, Irish peasants, with the result that other Irish peasants burnt us out um, because you can't win. And I'm not making this. What's the old real. saying? Beware of three things goes beware of three things the wicked west wind the potato blight and the smile of an Englishman <laughs> and, and, and on that subject um, the, uh, the, the phrase used in, um, in Europe uh, to describe uh, uh, the British or the English is uh, perfidious Albion and um, but I think that's uh, not known, really, and, and certainly in uh, in, in um, history lessons in, in Britain that uh, uh, Britain was referred to uh, as perfidious Albion, and there's a there's a damn good reason why that's so. Oh, because no, no, no. We're taught what we're taught is that, of course, Britain has no allies, only interests, and the interest of Britain is to maintain the balance of power in Europe. 
which is exactly the same thing, which which is called betraying your allies whenever it suits you. But then, yeah, but- I mean that's such that's such a great word, isn't it? Perfidious, and I, and I think it, uh, you know, it. it uh, I'm sure it goes back uh, probably to Napoleonic times and perhaps even earlier. Um, and it means that uh, as a nation, Britain is very, very good at it. And uh, the idea that this stopped in the 20th century, uh, uh, prior to World War One and prior to World War Two, I, I think is uh, hopelessly naive. I think uh, uh, that this, this role of this sort of tragic, uh, appeasing victim and so on is is probably very, very far from the truth. But uh, I mean, you consider how many documents are um, withheld from public gaze for a hundred years. I think, uh, uh, I, I, I think uh, the, the, the truth about uh, World War II will probably never be known. I mean, we, we, we need to hold on to the, uh, the, the jingoistic myth. Drive one, two, three, jump, I give you liberty. Always wanted to waltz in Berlin under the linden tree. I always wanted to even at a time as we live in now, where all these national myths about World War One and World War Two are being weaponized for various political aims, dear old Blighty still uh, has a kind of revolving door for other cultural influences, not least of all in that word, blighty, which Shrutin Rhinswami, what's the origin of that, speaking as a, a, a Mumbaiker? Uh, it's from bilaiti, which is a Hindi word for basically foreign. <laughs> but then it's also, it's almost a kind of Hindustani Urdu word as well, yes. isn't it? So it has that kind of Persian influence. Yes. But then, you know, with Manto, he's one of the great uh, screenwriters and one of the great influences on early Indian cinema, but because he's an Urdu writer and ended up in Pakistan after partition, Everyone loves him, but they don't actually know that much about him. No, um, I mean he loved uh, being in Bombay, especially not especially uh, being in Bombay, not just living in India. Uh, and he was he's such an integral part of um, the Bombay film industry in the 1930s and 40s, and we still see his influences and his uh, works as so widely read and loved in India but again we just haven't managed to find a way of talking about the fact that he was basically heartbroken after the partition and we now have an Urdu speaking Muslim mayor of London Hmm. his seat in Tooting has been taken by that most London of Labour MPs, a um, who's pu- actually seen some Bollywood films a, and ju- didn't just unlike, pretend, unlike Zach Goldsmith. Yeah, but but uh, you know, Pakistani Polish Labour MP 
Um, Ross and Pat, how, how is it that um, we can ensure that these national myths don't, don't subsume us, don't overwhelm us? By endlessly reinventing them, um, by endlessly critiquing them, by endlessly treating them with a certain amount of side-eye, um, by, you know, by making better art. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, cons- constantly, um, constantly critiquing them, I think, and, uh, and finding ways uh, to make those uh, critiques appealing to, uh, you know, o- ordinary kids, ordinary people, uh, because too often I think they're, they're neglected, uh, and therefore, as I say, saying earlier, um, right-wing writers, for want of another term, have really monopolized um, uh, popular fiction, um, and they, they write really good popular fiction. Um, look at Sherlock Holmes and, and all these things. They're, but they're all enforcing certain attitudes and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, national myths. And, and uh, yeah, it really needs some counterculture. But it also, um, it also needs more complex reading of those sources. I mean, it needs to be remembered that um, Conan Doyle, as, as indeed Julian Barnes in his novel about Conan Doyle makes plain, did a lot of work to clear the reputation of people who'd been wrongfully accused, including a Parsi guy who'd been falsely accused of cattle mutilation. Um, That someone we think of as a great imperialist writer, quote-unquote, like Ryder Haggard, is so much more complicated if you read more than a couple of novels than than that would appear. Um, That... If you compare him with his friend Kipling, Haggard is vastly less racist towards towards Africans than, than Kipling, who's discussing yes, on I, that I, subject. Yeah, I I grew up reading Ryder Haggard, and and, and uh, I don't remember, although it must have been there, um, uh, some uh, you know British imperialist. Uh, racist attitudes but uh yeah i just remember them being really enthralling stories um and, and yes it's just it's refreshing that i i know that just all authors have have many sides to them and uh, yeah it would it would be great if those other sides um uh, came out but all, all too often um what you might call what would you say i'm not even sure you one would use a word like left wing but alternative uh, figures to, to Conan Doyle and so on, um, we never hear about them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's like, oh, here's a poem from World War, World War I. I would not beg, I dared not rob, therefore I lied to please the mob. Now all my lies have proved untrue, and I must face the men I slew. What lies will serve me now I am among mine angry, disappointed young? Do you know who wrote that? No. Kipling. Kipling? Wow. Kipling, who's weird boots. That's, that's quite an admission, isn't it? Yeah, and, he'd uh, lost his son. I was going to say, I, I wondered if it was... I, I, um, I, I read that in um, account of his... In To End All Wars, I think, uh, uh, d- describes the, the uh, Kipling's uh, role in World War I. And... Um, 
Uh, yeah, I wonder if that had some oh, bearing yeah. well, on I mean, why the, the, the poem, his poem, My Boy Jack, about the death of his son, is one of the most heartbreaking of World War I poems because he suddenly realised what he'd done. There's that wonderful, there are two wonderful short stories from the post-war period. One Mary Postgate about this, this quiet spinster lady who essentially tortures a, de- a, cr- a, a downed German airman to death. Or rather stands over him watching him, watching him die of his wounds and gloats. And it's terrifying because it's sort of saying, this is what war does to you. This is what war has done to me. And there's another story about a woman who, who's let her... Well, what we gradually real She's been loved all his life, loved her nephew. And he patronises her and rips her off financially a little bit and then goes to war and gets killed. And afterwards, she goes to the cemetery, one of the big war cemeteries in France, and she's lost and she asks someone for the way. And the guy looks at her and says, come, he says, he said, I will show you where your son lies. And so she went with him, believing him to be the gardener. Gratuitous, gratuitous echoing of the Gospels. Um, most unexpected, you know, Jesus Christ in a role that will surprise you. <laughs> but also the fact that up to that last moment, we vaguely wondered, but it's never been confirmed to us that she's actually that the the dead the dead young man is her is her illegitimate son who was reared by her sister. It's Kipling could write heartbreak over World War One like almost nobody else, and yet he was the great propagandist. If one single person was responsible for for the cultural offensive that led to World War One, it is Kipling, and yet and yet. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is the thing that invariably establishment um, authors are, are often the, uh, the the strongest uh, strongest writers, and uh, um, um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, for for me personally, it's it's to try and um, I, I try and show the opposite. And I'm just just reminded of uh, uh, John S. Clark, uh, pa- uh, leading pacifist in. Uh, uh, in World War One, and he wrote, um, if you like, the antidote to if he he wrote an alternative version of it, uh, and uh, he, uh, if I can quote um, uh, a verse from it, he says, uh, "If you can do these things with easy mind and live and die in slums with swine's content, to every social ill be deaf and blind, and leave it all to God and Parliament, there is but one thing left for you to do." For mankind's sake, go out and buy a gun and blow your rotten brains to bits, for you have got no guts, my son. Um, that was amazing. John S. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's about ten verses of this guy, uh, and he's, he's barely known today. Um, so he's someone I'm trying to, uh, to dramatise his life because he's a, a great Scottish working-class hero. Um, and it's so refreshing to to know that these people were out there, but they're always eclipsed um, by by the other side. But the then there are the the people from you know, who find themselves in the middle. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the the raucous anger of the guns. Only the something something. Oh, I've forgotten. You know, it's it's that ceaseless rattle. 
it's that yeah. sense in Owen of the the pity of the, the pity of war, and that never went away because Owen is is a great poet, and he is the World War One poet we remember best. Um, cheery old soul," said Harry, ha, ha, Harry and Jack as they won, wa walked up the line with rifle and tack, but he did for them both with his plan of attack. <laughs> there, there, there is that. There, there, there are other things we learned, uh, uh, learned for exams that that completely subverted the war, World War One narrative, and that people like Neil Ferguson can't take back. So to uh, round this all up, how do we see the bad guys coming? This is the the question that interests me. We've we've established that essentially one of the things that needs to happen to stem the tide of all this unpleasantness, which is seems to be subsuming us is just to keep this kind of fuzzy, countercultural, complicated view of things. Um, now, this is a question that our friends on another great podcast, which uh, I very much encourage people to listen to, called State of Theory. And this is uh, put together, shortly by your colleagues at St Andrews University. Yes, uh, by Anin Deray Chaudhry and Hannah Fitzpatrick. So they did a podcast a couple of months ago, uh, a two-part podcast about the rise of fascism that was looking at not just at uh, the context of Europe and Donald Trump, but also looking at Modi's India and the sort of general dynamics of it. And one of the things they discuss, which is a very uh, useful essay to read, I think, in this respect, is Umberto Eco's Ur Fascism essay, where he tries to actually identify, you know, who, who are the bad guys? Is it because they've got their said legion skulls on their caps or, you know, are, are there forms of signification that you can identify. So this is a little excerpt from their podcast. Neither of us are particular fans of either the current British government or the previous Canadian government. But I don't think we would necessarily equate them with Modi and Trump no. and Modi and Trump's form of fascism. So I think one of the things that we are, we are beginning to see is that one can have particular fascist undertones or particular modes of discourse that are underpinned by a logic that is fascist without being a fascist party or fascist government. Yeah. So I think there is something fascistic about the British government's desire to control its academic researchers. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily call the British government a fascist government. Yeah. I probably wouldn't either. Mm. It is interesting as well, the the current legislation, the reason that it matters and the reason that we're talking about it is because the government at the same time in recent years has instated a very overt and strict policy about demonstrating what they refer to as impact in academic research. And impact is very much tied to your research's impact on government policy. So they have proposed to make it illegal to impact on research policy, but have tied university funding and modes of career progression in university hierarchies to a clear demonstration of impact. So they are, they are proposing to make it legal, make it illegal to change government policy. So presumably then impact will be defined as agreement and justification of government policy. Yes, which actually a number of a number of academics have already written and spoken about the impact agenda anyway. For, mm. you know, years and years, there are mm. people who've been 
going blue in the yeah. face trying to say this, that the only way to change policy is through gradual, through gradual means, that, that it's very difficult for a researcher or research group to present evidence and have a government, which presumably makes policies based on a very complicated relationship between ideology and evidence, for a government to just turn around and do a U-turn and say, oh, we were wrong about so that. So it's this uh, we didn't have the right thing which I know, Shruti, so in academia, much. you and your colleagues talk about, basically it's all you talk about, which is, is impacts, is how you can, you can uh, justify your research and work in terms of the impacts it's going to have on society. And defining that is often a, a, a serious problem for academia. But more generally, Ros and Pat, this, this way for the state to control thought, to control free mm. expression through funding, given that the European Union funding for science and for, for uh, all kinds of humanities is being pulled. What do we do? Well, oddly enough, by, by, by one of those uncanny coincidences, back in my 20s when I was a civil servant, I worked on precisely this issue for the Chief Scientist Committee at the Department of Health. And the way to find it, to fight it, it turned out, was practicality. That perceived policy needs shift so fast that no research is going to be viable unless it is not even research. I mean, I had this argument only the other night with uh, a Blairite Labour Party organiser who was saying, oh, we don't need research, we just need something that's cobbled together that will serve our, <laughs> serve our needs. I said... Can I quote you? <laughs> and I just have. Um, you know, that there is this assault on intellect that manifests itself as spin, and the thing to do is oppose it wherever you see it. It's the way that in a period of, of Twitter and Facebook, you have this endless struggle, even with your own side, not to go with the quick, easy answer, to actually apply a bit of thought. And it's a struggle. It's, it's the struggle that you have to have with yourself. And it's an ethos of, of truth-telling. And that's, that's the answer to fighting fascism, is to endless self-criticism. Bruce Sterling, the science fiction writer talking about blogs, described blogs as like being beaten to death with croutons. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Pat, you, yeah. you, you were talking about a kind of Overton window, but of literature, of art. I mean, and in your work and career, you have um, done quite well by just ignoring it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just uh, taking on board that the academia thing about impact. And I, I'm assuming that anything that uh, uh, challenges the government in, in any way uh, where research is concerned... Uh, and, and has a profound impact, uh, that, that wouldn't count. It's, in, in other words, it's somehow got to endorse the, uh, the status quo. So I, I, I suppose from a personal point of view, all I can really do is uh, look for characters, um, heroes, heroines, um, like Sylvia Pankhurst, for example, who's not so well known these days, um, and, or Alice Wielden, um, or the, the, the guy I uh, quoted in that, uh, his version of If, and to, to really dramatize them as uh, heroes and heroines. Um, the other thing I, uh, uh, that uh, I uh, am, am uh, quite keen on doing, although uh, I don't get so many opportunities these days because I think people have uh, sussed me out all too well, is that uh, 
I, I actually like working for uh, what should we say, uh, fairly conservative publishers uh, who whose stuff um, it, you know is is in my view often not particularly healthy and subverting from within. I mean, I think that's pretty much what I did with uh, Battle. In other words, you have a war comic and then you have an anti-war story like uh, uh, Charlie's War, uh, which went on to be the most successful story in battle, which really says a great deal about the readers. Um, so I suppose that, that from a personal self-examination point of view, that's what I'm constantly doing. Uh, I think the days when uh, some conservative publisher might ring me up and, and ask me to do whatever is the current equivalent of battle, uh, they're long gone. Unfortunately, I think I'm a little too notorious now, but uh, I live in hopes, you know. Well, Pat, thank you well, so Pat, much for spending this time with us to talk about Kevin Brownlow's It Happened Here. And, uh, it's a pleasure. It, it's been an absolute pleasure for us. So we, we were very, very excited about making this show. And uh, we very much hope you'll, you'll join us again sometime to talk about another film on our Scala map. I would absolutely love to. Thank you very thank much, you. Pat. It's been a great, great afternoon. And thanks also, of course, to Shruti for joining us. Ross, we should have you on our show about India sometime. I'd love to when I watched enough of the movies. <laughs> I wonder how many of you folks today would like to be my partner waltzing down the streets of Berlin. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.